0: I like to read scripture here at the beginning, blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming for it is at hand. That's from Joel chapter two, verse one. We actually sang it earlier to uh, hear this service in one of our songs but i'd like to focus a little bit differently and set the stage the goal on a, at least for me whenever it comes to talking about the meaning of the day i feel we need to go through the verses we need to read about the trumpets and just and hear what they have to say it's not a vast passage uh but i feel it's important to review those things but i i do like to ask the question because i feel it's not just a such an academic question but it does carry it does carry thoughts that should prompt us to ask ourselves questions. Ourselves questions about what we think. Uh, and what we're building upon. Part of what I'd like to highlight. And I'll try to highlight at the very beginning. Is that God is not going to build the new world. On the foundations of the old. What he's not going to do. Is take our world today and just sort of overlay something better on top of it. He is going to absolutely rip up the foundations of this world. For they are all cracked, corroded, and corrupted. And he's not going to build on the foundations of this world. He will lay absolutely new foundations. And... The destruction of this world's foundations is a part and parcel of what the Feast of Trumpets is designed to help us focus on. The God isn't content to build on the old and just build better things. He wants to build completely anew. So we're going to go over what happens on the day of the Lord today. And before that, we want to take a quick look at the foundations of this world to understand one facet of why such a devastating day is necessary. And the title of the sermon today is An End to Old Foundations. An End to Old Foundations. Well, you and I live in a world, how many trailers start that? In a world where you and I live. In a world where we live and go to work and and go home and have our families. What is the foundation of this world? Really, what is the foundation of this world? We can see what's been built upon it. We can look around us and see what's been built upon it. Now, you might think, well, the United States is built on different things than, say, Russia or, say, China. I would actually challenge that, and I'll challenge that a little more as we get into it. But let's just talk about the United States for right now, and let's look at what's currently being built on the foundation in the United States. We are in rampant gender confusion where people don't know what boys and girls are anymore. There's all this hoopla going on about, uh, oh, I don't want to get the name of the hospital wrong and I didn't write it wrong. But a particular hospital, some of you know the hospital I'm talking about, made some promotional videos about the different kind of gender surgeries that they do to to supposedly reassign someone's sex and how they offer those things to children. To children where they literally mutilate their bodies in an attempt to make them physically look like the other sex. And they praise it like it's something positive. And you have the the uh they're not technicians, really the administrators and I suppose some of the medical personnel talking about their procedures and there's pleasant music behind them and there's a pastel background while they're talking about the mutilation of children. It's insane. That's what we're building today on our current foundations. You look at the political sphere... I'm not that old. I'm I'm 52. I know for some of you, it's like, well, how are you standing up there? What's wrong? You know, do you need help? Do you need a chair? And others are thinking, man, you're like halfway there. You know, what in the world? You're like a virtual infant. Why am I? Why am I listening to you? Uh, but, you know, I've lived through several presidencies and several different changes of Congress. And I don't I can't at least I personally can't think of a time when I've seen it quite like this, where it's so personal. You know, we recently had a, a, a speech by the current president, uh, which I don't know who designed those optics, but those were just the worst optics ever. You know, if you're and something. Oh, but they did that on purpose. I can guarantee you, no president decides to look like Hitler in front of a Nazi-like background on purpose. I'm really pretty sure he did not do that on purpose. But um, don't get me wrong, I think the Marines were there on purpose, and and talked about how you know the, 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 that our republic and our democracy is in danger. Uh, from some of those who really align themselves very closely to, to Mr. Trump. Uh, and it's, it's difficult because there are people that would say prefer Mr. Trump be elected instead of Mr. Biden next time if it comes between the two of them that don't necessarily align with all the things that people that supported January 6th, et cetera. And they felt, yeah, but it, so all of us, you know, having a president get up and say such things about, about from the lowest to the highest of, a, of of one particular side of opponents, is that what's going on? And and whether, regardless of what he meant, everyone's primed to take everything in the worst way. Uh, take a look at the other side. I mean, if you didn't actually pay attention to the tr- the tweets of Mr. Trump over the entire time he was there, you really missed some excitement, right? I mean, there is some mudslinging and some punching and some kicking, uh, but then though you have one side saying oh that's just terrible that's just terrible and the other side saying no that's what I want my guy to do go get them. go get them these people are destroying the country go get them they shouldn't even be here anymore right but then the next guy gets in office and everything switches how can he say things like that it's like he's he's saying we're not American you know oh just because we want to vote for the other guy but the other side saying no get them get them they're terrible for our country they're ruining our democracy both sides are doing astonishing damage to the country. You know, if you consider yourself a, a build back better kind of person, you know, so you're just like, well, I'm I, I'm not allowed to vote because the church doesn't vote, but I I'd, I'd be voting for Mr. Biden. You know, if I had the opportunity. If that's you, or if you're like, no, I, I you know, I we don't vote, but I I don't know why I do a goofy voice. It's not meant to be personal, but still. Well, I don't know, I, I, I would vote for Mr. Trump if I could, but the church says I really, you know, shouldn't, so I, so I don't, but honestly, I, I got a MAGA cap, I just keep it in the closet, I don't want nobody to see it, or, you know, if that's you, let me just be really plain. You've got things to fix in your life. Because God didn't call you to support either one of them. He called you to support the one whose return we are talking about today. That's who he called us to support. And this day is, in a big way, a recognition that there's no one on earth worthy. There's no one that's going to fix any of this on earth. It is only him. He is the only solution. And we need him to do whatever he's going to do to fix it. What is the foundation of this world? For all the things you might see being built on it right now, the Bible actually tells us the foundation of this world, that Jesus Christ longs to remove. If we go to Genesis chapter 3. I remember being in Mr. Aguin's congregation in, in Dallas. And you can almost always guess he's going to go to Genesis at a certain point, you know. It's like it all starts right there. You know he's going to go to Genesis to talk about some of these things. And almost never do you think he was going to go to Genesis and he didn't. But sometimes you didn't think he was going to go to Genesis and he did. Uh, Because really the foundation of our entire world is laid right here. And I doubt that I have to tell you the entire story. uh, But I do hope you'll read it. It starts at Genesis 1-1. It's easy to find in your Bible. Uh, And I would recommend reading the whole thing if you haven't. But after Adam and Eve sin, after Adam and Eve sin, everything is different. God gave them everything. God gave them everything. And so in Genesis chapter 3, sorry about that. Genesis 3, we have the serpent in verse 1 tempting Eve to eat of the fruit. And we have Eve eating of the fruit, and then she hands to her husband, and it says that her husband ate as well. You know, when Jesus Christ was about to be tortured to death, that last night on earth before his execution... He was under pressure most of us can scarcely imagine. It wasn't just about his life. It's really all of our lives, right? Uh, He bore in a more literal way than any other person in history ever has the weight of the world. And he knew he was about to be tortured to death. It's where we get the word excruciating from. Is what he actually had to undergo. To the point that when he was praying. It says that his blood vessels and such were breaking to the point that sweat uh, dropped like blood from him. And even knowing what was coming. And asking his father to take it away. If there was some way their plan could work. Without it having to be this. If there was some other way. He wanted that. He wanted the easier path, not the absolute hardest path there could be. And yet he said something very important. We won't turn there for the sake of time, but in Matthew chapter 26, what does he say? He says, not my will, but your will be done. Not, not my will He says, father, you know, my will, I don't want to suffer. No one truly wants to suffer. He did not want to suffer. And yet, if that's what it took to accomplish God's will, then he said, not my will, your will, your will be done. What we see in Genesis chapter three is Adam and Eve saying, not your will. My will be done. God made it plain to them. Don't eat from that tree. You can eat from eat from all these other trees I've given you, but this one tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat from that one. The day you do, you're dead. The day you do, everything changes. It's, it was perhaps one of the easiest commands to keep mankind has ever been getting. Don't eat from one tree. The devil says, hey, it looks pretty good. And they ate. And it says very plainly, other places in the Bible, Adam was not deceived. Adam knew what he was doing. He chose not your will, God, but my will be done. Brothers and sisters, that's the foundation of this world. That was the beginning. Everything we see around us has been tainted by being built on that very foundation. Not your will, God, but our will. Our will be done. Even as people have stumbled in the dark searching for God. It's a corrupt searching because they, their, their minds are clouded by sin and misunderstanding and the end result is always, always something from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's always a mixture. There's no non-mixture out there unless it comes straight from the mouth of God and something He has built on some different foundation. Yeah, you know, I, I tried to list some isms, you know, isms, things that end in ISM that some of us might get excited about. Oh, that's, that's a good ism. I like that ism. And some bad ones. Ooh, that's a, that's a bad ism. Boo, hiss, go away, ism, go away. Uh, I've listed a few. I'll let you react internally, however you would like to any of them. Now, if you start hooting and hollering, we're going to know you like that one. So, you know, don't be careful. Uh Socialism. Yay. What? What? Understand. All right. So socialism, throw it out there. Capitalism. Communism. Statism. Really believe in the power of the state. Libertarianism. Conservatism. Liberalism. Humanism. Star Trek fans out there. Like humanism. I won't list more, but I guarantee you, including all the ones I just said, some of which are pretty American, some of which are not so much so, every single one of man's isms reflects the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Every single one. You know, it's a, there's a book I, I have not read yet, but I've listened to this fellow on podcasts. I'm very interested in reading the book. It's by a fellow named Patrick Deneen, D-E-N-E-E-N, Patrick Deneen. And it's titled Why Liberalism Failed. And it definitely has to talk about politics, but it's a lot more about philosophy. And you might think it's that he's... He's just always, he's a real conservative. Well, you know, he is actually. It's a part of why I first heard him was in a podcast debate between him and another conservative. It was actually really interesting. But when he says liberalism, he doesn't mean a modern political liberal. He's not talking about what today you might hear on Fox News or CNN about being a liberal. No, he means liberalism. He's actually talking about the very fundamental principles on which the country was founded which which was cl- more liberalism in the past, not what, say, you might call a, a liberal today. People didn't find the United States as conservatives trying to reproduce what they fled from in other countries or trying to reproduce the monarchy in England. They wanted something different. You look at the principles of the Declaration of Independence, you know, that, that, that we have a right, according to the Declaration, to pursue life, oh sorry, for, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I always want to throw pursuit at the beginning and then I get pursuit of happiness and realize I messed up and I got to start over. The right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And it, oh, I know in me, I started wanting, suddenly I'm wanting to sing, I'm proud to be an American. You know, and I, because I hear those things and it, it starts to trigger all these automatic things in me like I'm an animal. Because I love that about this country. I love the freedom that I've had. I'm not trying to knock it. You look at the Constitution and the structure and so many people today, so many people that let me just confess, if you don't mind a little confession, a part of me sympathizes with I'm drawn toward people who, who want to get back to the Constitution. They say, what's going crazy now? Why is everything going crazy? Because we've lost sight of the founder's vision, they would say. We've got to get back to really respecting the letter of the Constitution, right? They'll go and... You know, worship at the, uh, the, the altar of, uh, Antonin Scalia, uh, the justice. I'm just kidding. He was my favorite justice before he died. He hasn't done much jurisprudence since then. But I really liked Antonin Scalia because he really focused on the letter, you know, and he tried to just, he didn't try to make anything up, but he was to the, even when he made decisions I didn't agree with, I at least understood the logic because he was trying to stick with, with the letter. And they would say, we've got to get back to the founding principles of this country. Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, Patrick Henry. We've got to get back to that. And that's why I'm fascinated by this book, because everything I've heard about what he's written makes a lot of sense to me. And what he highlights is all the things that we are enjoying, quote unquote, today. The destruction of the family. The constant division. People on the extreme left and right appealing more to strong men that can reshape the world the way they want. Uh, The reshaping of what it means for sex and gender. uh, The complete ridicule of religion in the public sphere, he says all of that is the unavoidable product of what the founders put in place at the beginning of the United States of America, which is a radical sense of individual rights and that we all have the right to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. Because I did it again. I put pursuit at the beginning. We all have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If some guy is going to be happier pretending for his entire life that he's a woman. He should have the right to do that. They would say. In fact, in this debate. One fella, a Hardcore conservative. Talked about how excited he is about uh, gay rights. He said it's wonderful. Yes, these people should be allowed to do whatever they want to do. That's what it means to hearken back to these things. And yet, brethren, those are the things that are destroying our country and destroying us as a people. And yet, what are the alternatives? Well, that's what you see today. We need to get a strong man in office. Right. If he's already been in office before, they think that's all right. That'd be the one a lot of them want again, that he's going to change these things. He's going to outlaw talking about some of these things in schools. He's going to outlaw talking about some of these things in colleges. And that's going to make everything better. Is it going to make everything better? It's amazing how many people are incredible champions of free speech, unfettered free speech, say anything you want to say. That's how this country is going to work. But then they want to ban certain things like, say, uh, critical race theory in the classroom. And don't get me wrong, I'm not rooting for any of these things. None of us should be rooting for any of these things. We're rooting for God. Radical free speech, is that what we want? Well, call me narrow-minded, but here's what I care about free speech, that we can do the work. That we can preach the gospel. That's what I care about. That's what's most important. Because that's the mission that counts. That's what we're here to do. The foundations of this world, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Why did they not, why do we not have a national religion in the United States? Well, because a lot of people came here for religious freedom. Right? They didn't like the idea that you gotta pay, say, some of them, taxes to, to a certain church. Some liked it very much. They just wanted it to be their church. Uh, there is no national American religion. And it's part of why you and I can meet in this building today. We benefit from that. It's a wonderful freedom to have. But it also means the religion next door to you may be radically different. The religion in this town may be radically different. Next thing you know, you think, well, these people want to involve peyote in their religion, you know, and take hallucinogenics. Do we allow that or not? Someone says, well, hey, we really want to worship the devil. Uh, and, you know, you've got your Ten Commandments here. That's great, but we'd like this goat-headed monstrosity to be there, too. It's like, well, uh... okay, no, not your religion. Your religion, no. We're not going to allow some goat-headed monstrosity on. Well, then what makes our religion safe, right? Do you understand this is a losing scenario, where is the solution? Brethren, today is about the solution. It's Jesus Christ coming from the sky, meeting up with us, and saying, let's get this done. And coming down and absolutely ripping up the entire foundations. Every single bit. Because you can't build on these foundations. Turn to Psalm 11. Psalm 11, simple statement, but I hope we all embrace it. It says here in Psalm 11 in verse 3, it's a rhetorical question. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? It's rhetorical because there's no need to answer it. The answer is obvious. There's nothing you can do. If the foundations are destroyed, there's no building on that you have to find good foundations or else rip those up in fact just to make sure we're clear about the purpose of Christ on this day let's jump to the towards the end of the bible first john chapter 3 in first john chapter 3 if i ask you why jesus christ came to this earth I'm sure many of you could have many different answers because there's multiple facets to what he came to achieve, to be sure. But we do have one of the reasons Jesus Christ came to earth, told us explicitly here in First John chapter 3. First John 3 and verse 8. First John 3 and verse 8. We read, he who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Every single one. Every single work of the devil absolutely uprooted. Jesus Christ towards the end of the life of his life was telling his disciples that the ruler of this world is coming. The devil is coming. And he says, he has nothing in me. If you did a Venn diagram, the devil and Jesus, there's no intersecting of those Venn diagrams. there has got to be at least one person out there that really resonates with Venn diagrams. And that was your shining moment. Uh, there's no intersection between the two. There's nothing they share. And when he is here, he will absolutely destroy the works of the devil. It'll be, and we see it on the day of the Lord. We see it in a physical realm. Things so devastating, it says that every island and mountain is literally moved out of place. When God says he comes to shake the earth, he means that. Mankind has spent 6,000 years drawing what it thinks civilization should be on the etch-a-sketch. And God's going to grab it and it's all going to be gone. So he starts with those things. But then the work gets more difficult because it has to go to the inside. Unless he destroys the works of the devil in man. Then it all happens again. It all happens again. Part of why we are who we are today as the church of God brethren. Is to allow and participate with Jesus Christ. To destroy the works of the devil in us. To help him found new foundations in us. Because if there's any remnants of old foundations in our heart. Then what can the righteous do? What can Jesus Christ build in you? If there are remnants of old foundations. So God explained to Adam and Eve what would be the result of. Of these foundations. If we go back to Genesis chapter 3. I know you wrote down Genesis 3. And we didn't read anything last time. I ended up summarizing it. In Genesis chapter 3. He tells Adam and Eve. What would become of them specifically. And we sometimes read this. At graveside services. Or at least allude to it. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 19, he tells Adam. He says, verse 19, in the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. It will be work and striving and struggle for you, he says, in a world that no longer cares whether you live or die. God created a world for them in Eden that, in a sense, sort of cared that they would live. It bore fruit for them. There were no thorns. There was nothing to damage them. It was a world designed to help them live. God says before this, he says, no, it's going to bring up thorns now. The world isn't going to care about you. And you're going to have to strive and struggle in it. Until, he says, you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are. And to dust you shall return. That for them was the end of my will not yours thinking. That they would just return to dust and ashes. But this is also true of the world that's founded on those ideas. It will turn to dust and ashes. If we go to Matthew chapter 24. It's been referred to at least once today. And it's important to have it in mind. Matthew chapter 24, verses 21 and 22. Matthew 24. When thinking about the coming day of the Lord, it is so vital to keep this in mind. Matthew 24, verse 21 and 22. Starting verse 21. For then, Jesus Christ says, there will be great tribulation such has not been since the beginning of the world until this time known or ever shall be. Brethren, we've lived through terrible times. Some of us are too young to remember some of those terrible times. But we heard about some earlier. We had in the uh, sermonette mentioned World War II. Uh, Some who never want to hear those noises again. But we've lived through a world that has committed the holocaust in which people were butchered in such astonishing ways. We've lived through the Khmer Rouge there. You look at what happened with Cambodia uh, and Pol Pot. Uh, we don't really teach history so much anymore. We've turned it all into social studies. Uh, Dr. Riel has so many helpful things to say about that in terms of how, well, we're just trying to teach people how the world should be. But history is what tells us about the mistakes we've made and the fruit of the past and what we've accomplished. You know, we're on the verge of of having this booklet about uh Germany and prophecy ready to go that Mr. Rob McNair has worked so hard on uh and working together with materials that Mr uh the Dr. O'Neil has written as well. Uh both of them with materials together. It's just a fantastic uh booklet. And uh, I, it's terrible in terms of having to go back and read to what ancient Assyria did and how they would treat peoples uh to make sure that their points got across. And I won't describe what ancient Assyria would do because we have children here and I don't want them thinking of the pictures that these words would cause to form in their minds. But I think of what Ashurbanipal did in Assyria and then I read Jesus Christ saying, there will never have been a time like what is coming. That is the end result of my will, God, not yours thinking. How bad? Verse 22. Unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, for those God has called aside and is working with for a purpose, those days will be shortened. It is vital as we begin talking about the day of the Lord to keep in mind that what God is doing, as extreme as it sounds, as the things that God does astonishes the thing. How can it, how, why does he have to make it that bad? It's because this is the end. If he doesn't a world in ashes, a world in which there is nothing left. And humanity's final years before becoming ashes were written by nothing but terror and horror and suffering because his cure seems radical but that should only remind us of just how bad the disease is. And it's the disease you get when you build a world on those foundations of not your will God but mine. So let's go ahead and jump into the prophecies concerning this day. And I'll start a little earlier than the day of the Lord because I know Ms. Robinson were talking about it. How can you not talk about the seven seals before you get to the, the trumpets? So let's go ahead and go to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. I'm going to read quickly through some of this. Let's go through Revelation 6 verses 1 through 8. We read here, now John says, seeing in vision, after the tale of the churches has been told, uh, we have the church eras all the way through Laodicea, which is the modern era. And now we're getting into what is to come. It says in verse 1, I saw when the lamb, oh, and I should highlight, the lamb has been given uh, a scroll sealed with seven seals. I thought of making a physical replica, but my imagination exceeded my actual willingness to do the work. So anyway, imagine an amazing scroll, just the finest you've ever seen, uh, with seven seals. And John is in tears because no one in heaven or earth is found worthy to open them. But the Lamb is worthy. He is worthy amongst us all. And so he begins opening the seals. And each seal is a revelation of things to come. So in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 1, it says, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And behold, and I looked and behold a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow. And a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, verse 3, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see. And another horse, fiery red, went out and it was granted to one, the one who sat on it, to take peace from the earth and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. Verse 5. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and see. So I looked and behold a black horse and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come and see. So I looked and behold, a pale horse and the name of him who sat on it was death and Hades followed with him. That is the grave and power was given to them. These four horsemen over a fourth of the earth today, that would be approximately two billion people to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death and by the beasts of the earth. These are the famous four horsemen of the apocalypse. We have a number of telecasts talking about that. The four horsemen ride and others. Uh, we recently had a series from Dr. Winale on each individually on each of the horsemen. Uh, but what do they mean? There's an interesting parallel. We won't take the time to turn there, but please note it yourself in Matthew chapter 24. In Matthew 24, Jesus Christ is talking about things to come. And he talks about, in order, uh, religious deception. He talks about war and rumors of war. He talks about famine and want. And he talks about disease And when you actually line those up, keeping in mind that Jesus Christ is the one who reveals the book of Revelation. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ to show his servants what must shortly take place. It fits. You have religious deception. You have one on a white horse with a crown and a bow. Not with many crowns like Jesus, who also rides a white horse. And not with a sword like Jesus, but with a bow. It's a counterfeit Christianity. Uh, You have warfare and that's the most blatant of the horses, perhaps. Uh, you have, with a sword, come to take peace from the earth. And then in the same order, he talks about famine coming. And then pestilence. And you see the other two horses, black and pale. But there's a difference there. In Matthew chapter 24, in that context, he talks about how the end isn't yet. And he's talking about the times even far away leading up. ...to the times ahead. And think about it. When has mankind not had religious deception? When has mankind not had warfare? Really, you could say the first war uh, was between Cain and Abel. And you might think, well, it's just two people. Well, percentage of the population, it was virtually a world war. You know, I mean, it's, it's a lot of people. Uh, so, it's when has mankind not had warfare? When has mankind not had famine with people in want... And then finally, when have we not had disease? The four horsemen represent something completely different. This isn't just someone taking out peace from a piece of the earth here or a piece of the earth there. This is peace all over the globe. This isn't just religious deception. If you look at the white horse, this is a religion going out to conquer. These are end time manifestations of all four Of these things in time versions that do these things on a scale. Mankind has never before seen religious deception on a scale. Never before seen warfare on a scale. Never before seen famine and pestilence on a scale. Never before seen, you know, I do TWPs and talk about when I talk about coming disease and I say, look, if some of you think that COVID-19 was it. You are wrong. That was a warning shot across the bow. In those days, people were going to be man, remember the good old days of COVID-19? I tell you, when I was laying there on that ventilator, it's like, ah, oh, this is the good life. You know, because the things coming will put the past to shame. The four horsemen represent end time versions of these things, the likes of which mankind has never seen. Then you have the fifth seal, Revelation chapter 9. Let's read there. Revelation, sorry, Revelation 6 and verse 9. Continuing in Revelation chapter six, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cry with a loud voice. How long, O Lord, holy and true until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them. Later, we see that the white robe pictures the righteous acts of the saints and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow brethren sorry fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed now this is sometimes a difficult scripture we covered it uh, i think a couple seasons ago in tomorrow's world uh, on the tv show on a uh, bible q and a or uh, the bible's quite no your questions the bible's answers that's the name of that program and this is not like well, you know, son, one day when you die, you'll go to heaven and live under an altar. So just, that's right, son, just like a worm, just like a grub. Uh, this is not a vision of what actually happens to people when they die. When you understand the symbolism, just like it's not literally, we're not going to see, well, there goes the black horseman riding through town. Oh, dear. Well, I guess famine's on the way. Uh, these are symbols, Right? These are symbols. And when you look at the biblical symbolism, it's obvious. If if we lived in that time, we would know what pools at the bottom of the altar. And it's the blood of the sacrifice. What pools at the bottom of the altar at the temple is the blood of the sacrifice. And we know that the blood of the righteous slain cries out to God. Just as uh, Abel's did back when Cain slew him. God says, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. This time pictures a martyrdom of the saints, of our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not everybody. I won't go into all the detail. Revelation chapter 12 pictures a portion of the church that is protected in a place of safety. And it pictures a portion of the church that is not, that must go through those things. And by the way, that doesn't mean we don't have to worry about tribulation and difficulty before that time. There's actually good expectation that things are going to get incredibly difficult. But once the great tribulation starts, then we see a division being made. And God says that he will protect part of his church for a time, times and half a time, three and a half years. And then there's a part that isn't because they have to go through that. You can read in Revelation chapter 3. In the Philadelphia church, which we strive to be the remnant of because we do believe that era is over, but the church does remain. We strive to be that Philadelphian remnant. And in Revelation 3, Christ says to that church, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the whole earth. That's verse 10. Of Revelation 3. It's one reason of many. The work is important. The work does matter. Anyone who says. I don't see any place in the Bible. I got to do the work. Well then you're not reading your Bible. Or else God has allowed you to fall into a stupor. Even the verse today. uh, Mr. Strain read from Daniel. Notice it said that they will shine like the stars forever. Who? It says in Daniel 12. Those who turn many to righteousness. If you are a part of this work, you are a part of turning many people to righteousness. Those who do not care about a work in the world and want to stare at their spiritual navel and simply attend to themselves are not a part of turning many to righteousness. The work does matter. Then there's the Laodicean church described in the same chapter. And they are told instead that they are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus Christ doesn't say that because he doesn't love them. He says it because he does love them. And they can't see their condition. He counsels them to buy from him. I salve. So they can see themselves. And he tells them they will have to go through the fire. To be tested. That's verse 17 of Revelation chapter 3. Again, don't forget, this time is the worst time in human history. We have the nations that have descended from Israel that will go through all of this. The United States, uh, Great Britain, the British descended nations. It's a time called Jacob's Trouble. So we have to know, where is Jacob in the world? And Jacob did not just have one son named Judah. It's not just the Jews. The 12 sons, right? And those who bear his name in a special way, which is Ephraim and Manasseh. If you're not familiar with how to find who is Israel in the world, you must read uh, the United States and Great Britain in prophecy. It's just, if, if you haven't read that in a long time, I highly, highly recommend that you consider reading that. And so here we have, The tribulation going on. The beginning of this three and a half year period in which all the effects of the four horsemen are cumulative and bring us right into this time of absolute difficulty and suffering. Please understand as we talk about when God intervenes, how bad is it? How bad is it? Everybody dies. They don't because he stops it. But if he didn't stop it, everyone would die. Everyone you know now, every person you've ever loved who's still alive, every dog you've ever taken care of, every living thing on the planet would die if God didn't step in. That's how bad things actually get as mankind is unleashed to do his worst. As we'll see in a moment, Dr. Meredith referred to those days, those kind of first two and a half years of the three and a half years as the day of man. Uh we have man in a sense triumphant, the evils of man triumphant, the devil empowered uh to help whom he will. Uh and it is indeed a terrible time. And it's odd to think of how mm, allowing things to be so bad can be so bad. I mean, sorry, that any good can come of that. But I do find it interesting if I if I think of humans who have suffered a lot, I think of Jesus Christ, but I also think of Job. Job suffered a lot. Uh, really, Job went through things that I, I, I scarcely say there's there's maybe no one in here who can actually imagine what it was like to be Job and lose every single one of your children and lose every single thing you own and to have your health completely stripped from you and have your own wife tell you just curse God and die and get it over with because clearly your creator has turned against you. Uh, an astonishing tale and worth reading and you see his suffering... His agonizing. And then you read in James, we won't turn there, also for the sake of time, but in James chapter 5, where James says that God allowed all those things to come to Job for the merciful end that he had in mind for Job. And you think, how in the world can any of that be called mercy? But we have to trust that God knows what he's doing. We have to trust that God knows where he's taking us And for what purposes? You know, we said earlier, the foundation of this world is man telling God, my will, not yours. The foundation of the world to come will be built on Jesus Christ's statement, your will, not mine. But that's part of what God wants to know of you and me in this life. You know, when you're really happy and life is going your way and you're getting the things you want, it's pretty easy to say, man, God, you're pretty awesome. You know, whatever you want, God, that's what I want. But God needs to know from us. Anybody can say that. When things get difficult, when we suffer pains, when a decade passes and it seems as though our prayer still has gone unanswered for reasons we cannot comprehend. That's what God wants to know. Will you still say, my will and not yours. Because those are the people he wants to build those new foundations with. So with all of this suffering and all of this death and all of this slaughter, we get to Revelation chapter 6 and verse 12. And we get to the beginning of what this day pictures more specifically. Revelation 6 and verse 12. It says here, John writes, I looked when he opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood and the stars of the heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind and the sky receded as a scroll when it's rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth... These are the men that have been reigning with strength and power... Making their will come to pass right and left. At their command, death took place. And at their command, mercy was extended. It says that the kings of the earth... The great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men... Every slave and every free man... Literally everyone... Hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains... And said to the mountains and rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? You know, this world works very hard to sell you a hallmark card version of Jesus Christ. It's the Jesus Christ that just Wants to make sure you got a good job and you're happy and you find the one you love and you get through hard times and is there to hold your hand. And don't get me wrong, he is amazing. He is wonderful. He's the one we should long to marry one day because that's what we're here to do is to be his bride. But he is also the creator and filled with might and power and wrath. God is capable of wrath. This world doesn't even think that's possible. How could God have wrath? They use ideas of God's wrath as somehow evidence He doesn't exist. And yet don't you internally feel wrath sometimes when you hear about some completely unrighteous thing? I mentioned I think on the, on the podcast, I, the thing that tends to get me is crimes against children. Or sometimes the elderly I've discovered because there's so much footage now of terrible things happening all over the world. You know, <laughs> crimes against the helpless. Uh, and it's just, It's just sometimes I I see it or I hear it and I can't let it go unless I pray about it. It's like I have to ask God to remove it from me. Jesus Christ is capable of wrath. And we ignore that even in our own lives at our peril. What this sixth seal represents is miraculous intervention in the world. That God himself is about to step into the world. It announces that the day of the Lord has arrived. And God says enough. He cannot stand to put up with it any longer. Um, Mr. Strain mentioned so well the idea that surely Jesus Christ is is more excited about us becoming a part of His family even than we are. That, that he's been that he and God have been working towards this since the foundation of the world. Since before that, it was their plan. And can we fathom how hard it is for God to see every abuse, every sin, every crime? I don't want to say the words of these crimes because, again, I don't want to plant those specific pictures in your mind. But just think of everything that has ever happened on the earth, every degradation, every horrible thing, every horror out there. The world celebrates now for entire months at a time, ridiculing the way of God and perverting the lives of others and children And how much he is chomping at the bit to say, please, I'm ready to go fix this. Let me fix this so it never has to happen again. How he and his father long for that. But they work in a certain way when you see in scripture. There's a time they wait for sin to become full. In Revelation 6 here with the with the, uh, the heavenly signs that announce the day of the Lord's beginning... That time has finally come and God says enough. I find an interesting parallel. If you turn, keep your place in Revelation, we'll come back to it. But turn to Zechariah chapter 2. Zechariah chapter 2. There's this statement that just always gets my attention. Zechariah chapter 2. And speaking of an end time situation. When you read the details. We're just going to capture verse 13. Zechariah 2 and verse 13. We're told here. Be silent all flesh. Before the eternal. For he is aroused from his holy habitation. This idea that. Mankind does what it does and things go on here and there and they move. And then, next thing you know, God is standing from his throne. And you realize that you need to be quiet. Because for God to be moved is everything. And I I find that parallel. I told you to keep your place in Revelation. Let's go back to Revelation, but let's go to... Chapter eight. Revelation chapter eight. And we have the seventh seal. And in Revelation chapter eight, starting in verse one, we see that when the lamb opens the seventh seal, it says there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. I just can 't even fathom silence in heaven for half an hour. If you actually read the earlier chapters, heaven 's like the busiest place in the universe there 's multi-headed creatures everywhere and there 's flying around they 're all praising this and praising that and, and there 's so much going on it 's like a tremendously busy place. It is the nexus of all creation. and yet, what is about to happen is of such fundamental significance to all of reality that even heaven itself sits in silence for half an hour because the eternal is moved from his holy habitation and the day of the Lord is to begin. And so we see in verse 2, it says, I saw the seven angels who stand before God and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel having a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer Filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. And this is just announced at the beginning of the seven trumpets. Brethren, every time when you pray before God, God, please fix this world. I'm tired of seeing these people suffer. I'm tired of suffering. I'm I'm tired of seeing unrighteousness win and the righteous lose. I'm tired of seeing the suffering where people are so perverted. They don't even know they're suffering and they don't know what they're doing to the generations to come after them and after them. When we see this world and we go before God on our knees and ask him like we've been taught to ask your kingdom come. Those prayers are bound up and they go before God. And he acts. And this is the time. When those actions take place. So the trumpets. Again keep your place here. We'll come back to Revelation. But let's turn to Leviticus 23. And remind ourselves. Why we're talking about these things today. You know, the trumpet guys are going to have to play fast. I've only given myself 10, 15 minutes. Leviticus chapter 23. And we'll read about the feast of trumpets starting in verse 23 of Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23, 23. We read here, Then the Eternal spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month on the first day of the month. This is the first day of the seventh month on God's calendar. It says, speak to the children of Israel saying in the seventh month on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You should do no customary work on it and you shall make an offering by fire to the eternal. This is why we keep this day. It is a memorial of the blowing of trumpets. But what trumpets? When you think about the holy days, trumpets really stands out. You got some clearly tied in with a. A festival harvests, I mean sorry, harvest periods. You got some historical ones, Passover. Even the days of unleavened bread is kinda of tied into the history of fleeing the Exodus. Then you have this one just right here, it's talking about a memorial of blowing of trumpets. Why? It's covered so well in the Sermonette. Because it's picturing this day. Let's go back to Revelation. Oh right, you know, before we do, let me actually read uh, two other things we're going to be going back to revelation chapter 8, but I'd like to read what dr. Meredith wrote in the holy days God's master plan about all of this in this time in the holy days God's master plan dr. Meredith writes thankfully before it is all over God's intervention will prevent humanity from utterly destroying itself for then the day of man will be over and the day of the Lord will commence. Yet it will not begin with peace and joy for everyone. Rather, the Almighty will have to enforce peace upon rebellious humanity by first breaking its stubborn will. Thus, our creator will intervene to show his power and remind a wayward civilization that he is the ultimate ruler of heaven and earth. He says elsewhere in the same booklet, of course, the trumpet plagues are described in Revelation 8 and 9 coming after the great tribulation these awesome plagues will literally shake this earth like nothing ever has before at a time when the prophesied beast and false prophet have just destroyed millions of lives with awesome technological weapons of war then the great God intervenes to show his power and remind a rebellious civilization that he's the ultimate ruler of heaven and earth I'd like to highlight you don't probably don't have this issue of tomorrow's world yet unless you are a time travel Traveler, raise your hand. Ah, that would have been fascinating. Uh, anyway, this is the uh, uh, October-November issue. You should be getting it very soon, and it has an article by Mr. Richard Ames. I want to highlight uh, that this perfect reading for this season, called "The Day of the Lord." What is it? with a, a precious-looking blood moon on there. Look at that, you know. Anyway, my thanks to uh, Mr. Robinson and the crew that works so hard on these magazines and our editors, uh, a lot of which are right there in the audience. Thank you, guys. But this is Mr. Ames just doing what Mr. Ames does so well, and he goes into this time, the day of the Lord, so thoroughly. In fact, I'd also like to highlight, in the middle is a, a three-and-a-half-year timeline uh, that Mr. Robinson and Mr. Ben Graham, uh, worked very hard on. Thank you, Mr., uh, Ben Graham. Thank you, Mr. Robinson. It does have two typos. No, I'm not gonna give you a quarter when you find them, but, uh, regrettably, they were, literally, they were the last things we put in there and go figure. There's two typos, so. One's very subtle. Bet you won't find it. The other one you'll probably find. Anyway, uh, they did a magnificent job with this. And so please do, please do take a look. We'd, uh, we're planning on eventually in the future turning it into some sort of digital uh, product, but not until I fix the typos. So anyway, I hope you'll take a look at the magazine. Let's go back to Revelation chapter eight and read about just some of these trumpets that are blown in this year long period of the three and a half years called the day of the Lord. Revelation chapter eight. And verse seven. Revelation eight and verse seven. We read here the first angel sounded, that is, sounded his trumpet, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. We can read these so fast and we're going to read them, but I hope you'll think about them. What if you were standing outside? And have you ever been outside in a hailstorm? I have. It's it's not, you know, pleasant that bonks you on the head if you're not careful. And but Imagine hail that God has sent to punish humanity. And then you notice it's not just hail, it's fire. It's hail and fire. And then you notice it's hail, fire, and blood raining from the sky on planet Earth. It says also a third of the trees were burned up and all green grass was burned up. You know, I see images of California and its occasional wildfires. And imagine the entire world going through California. Have you ever had a fire kind of far away from you in the state, but you smell it in the air? Yeah, I've been through that before. It's like, and you smell, it's like, what is that? What is that smell? And you realize there's this fire, you know, way down. Sometimes it can even be in another state if the fire is big enough and you catch wind of that. But imagine what it'll be like all over the entire earth when God decides suddenly a third of the trees are on fire, and a third of the grass. Verse eight. The second angel sounded. And it says something like a great burning mountain. I'm sorry, a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. Blood, not just red necessarily. It just seems literally to be saying blood. Is it just red like blood? I read blood. I tend to just. I'm a pretty simple guy. We were talking earlier like this might be some kids' favorite. If you're boys, oh, and a third of the sea became blood wow you know this is the gory stuff well it is can you fathom a third of the sea actually being blood and it says in verse 9 a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed if a third of every living creature in the sea died floating to the surface bloating and rotting it's not a pretty place It says in verse 9, a third of the living creatures died and a third of the ships on the sea were destroyed. And there's a lot of commerce going on at that time. It's actually a time of great commerce during the tribulation. Verse 10, it says, Then the third angel sounded and a great star fell from heaven burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died because of the water, because it was made bitter. you ever had announcements like you need a, a... or they call a, uh, a boil notice, you know, in your area because something's happened in the water and they want to make sure, there's not going to be enough notice. How do you know? Is every third glass of water potentially going to be poisonous for you? What would life be like for you? If the oceans were blood, there's dead fish everywhere, it's raining hail, fire, and blood, and you don't know if your next glass of water is going to kill you. It says in verse 12, the fourth angel sounded and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine and likewise the night. What a hellish scenario this is. Now keeping in mind, if mankind were left to his own devices, all this and worse would happen and the world would be gone. God is giving mankind a taste of what he would have done with the world. He says elsewhere in Revelation that he comes not only to attack the people, but to destroy those who destroy the earth. And he's giving them a taste of that. You know, what do you do with your children? Sometimes we have to make up punishments for them that are artificial in nature, but they're meant to prevent the real life punishment of their actions. You know, there's there's nothing necessarily sinful in going out into the street. But when you're a child and don't know how to look both ways, it can be fatal. And so, you know, maybe it's a little bit of corporal punishment. I don't know what you do with your kids. But I know what we need to do is what is necessary for them to know, don't go out into the street. That's a time you don't say, well, you know what? I'll let them get hit by a bus once. They'll know better next time, right? Mankind was heading towards that. We read that in Matthew 24. And so as extreme as all this is, keep in mind, this is him having to make an impression that will last hopefully a thousand years. As bad as all of that is, it says in verse 13 of Revelation 8, And I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Remember, that's only four trumpets. Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining trumpet blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Like, oh, you think that was bad. You don't want to be there for the three trumpets that are still left. Now, rather than read about those three trumpets, I'd like to actually read from Mr. Ames' article in this particular issue, because he talks about them in the magazine, Trumpets 5 and 6. He says, in this magazine that y'all are about to get, The first woe, the fifth trumpet plague, is described in Revelation 9 as the fifth angel sounds a trumpet announcing a five-month-long military campaign. The second woe, the sixth trumpet plague, pictures an intense military counterattack. And then he has the verse here. One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. Then the sixth angel sounded. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. That's in Revelation 9, verses 12 through 14. Mr. Ames goes back to summarize. Is at this key moment in history? An army of 200 million soldiers Now, sometimes I don't fully grasp how big that is. Keep in mind, the United States generally is a population of 300 million. The entire United States. It's a little more than that now, like 330, somewhere around there. But 300 million people in the United States. Imagine one army composed of two-thirds of the entire population of the United States. It's the most massive army the world has ever seen. He says this key moment in history. An army of 200 million soldiers will proceed to the west. Across the Euphrates River. And will destroy an entire third of the earth's population. As if one third of all the people in this room. Were now dead. Whether it's nuclear weapons. Whether it's chemical warfare. But gone. Gone. It is a vast exchange. It says, this phase of the end time World War III will kill literally billions of human beings. As Jesus said, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. If not for God's intervention, all life on earth would be destroyed. Then finally, we have the seventh trumpet, which is really awesome and was covered in our first sermon. So I won't go into that a whole lot, but uh, how could I not say something, right? You know, uh, we've already read from First Thessalonians chapter 4. Right? Uh, which is a beautiful passage. Paul says, you know, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who are asleep. And he talks about our glorification and our change. It's our hope. This is the only hope, but it's not just our hope. You read in Romans chapter eight, the entirety of creation longs for this. It's not just you who wants to be a part of God's family. There's people out there suffering right now that don't know that your transformation into a son and daughter of God in glory is the solution to everything they've ever wanted. There are lands that are polluted, that are being destroyed. The Lithium digging out of the ground to make all these electric cars is just ruining uh, places where people could live. All of that is crying out for you. Please do what it takes. Please be a part of this. We long for the revealing of the sons of God. That seventh trumpet announces that Jesus Christ is king. Announces all of these kingdoms are now his. And then we will be his forever at that time as we put on immortality. Mr. Ames, going back to his article, writes the following. While Christians rejoice at the return of their savior, the prophesied king of kings, we must remember this seventh trumpet is also the announcement of a third woe. Remember, it's a happy time for us, but it's still a woe for the rest of the earth. For those who continue to fight against the return Christ, terrible judgment still awaits. As the seventh trumpet also announces the seven last plagues described in Revelation 16. They include plagues of painful sores on those who have worshipped the beast power and its image. They include even more poisonous rivers and seas to the extent that Every living creature in the sea dies, it says in Revelation 16.3. The sun will become still hotter, resulting in extreme heat waves that torment those who will not repent of their sins. And Mr. Aguin says in Revelation, the mystery unveiled, this pouring out of these final things, these seven bowls of wrath, occur rather quickly as we see when we examine the nature of the plagues. If the second and third plagues, for instance, lasted more than a few days, all life would perish from the planet. And I do cover the time between trumpets and atonement in a living church news article from 2018 uh, titled from trumpets to atonement. It's not the most imaginative title, Uh, but it does. It's very literally. So to talk about those things, it's easy to think of these things as harsh brethren. But let's just look at one more verse before we do conclude. And I'll have another verse when we conclude revelation 16 and verse 10. Revelation 16 and verse 10. The bowl judgments that happen after Christ has gathered his people and is preparing to uh, take out Satan the devil on the day of atonement. During this period, it says in Revelation 16 and verse 10. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom became full of darkness and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. Have you ever been in enough pain that you have chewed your tongue? Let me say my appendix really, really, really hurt. I did not chew my tongue. That was not, that was not thinking, oh, I'm going to start chewing my tongue because this is bad. They're in such pain that this is how they respond. And yet, knowing it's from God. We read earlier, they said, hide us from the wrath of the lamb. Knowing that this punishment is from God for their sins. Read verse 11. What is their response? They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. That's how bad things become. How do they get this way with these people? Because of the lives they've lived built on the wrong foundations. Brethren, we have an opportunity to change all of that, but only if we're building on the right foundation now. What is that right foundation? That right foundation is Jesus Christ's statement, not my will, but your will. If I would encourage you to consider anything in these days between trumpets and atonement, I would consider, I would encourage you and I encourage me um, to think about the aspects of our lives. What are we choosing as sources of entertainment how deeply do we get into our commentators and our news where are we mentally aligning ourselves in terms of what is going on with the world in what ways are our thinking and our thoughts we see reflected by political pundits are people on YouTube channels that don't even have God's spirit I would ask all of us to examine ourselves and ask ourselves and ask God, because we need him to help us see ourselves. Is this aspect of me that's resonating with this? Is it truly something built on the foundation of Jesus Christ? Not my will, but yours, God. Or is it built on the other? Because we're promised by Jesus Christ that every plant, every plant his father has not planted will be uprooted. But if we can uproot those things now, and we all have them, every single one of us have them, and sometimes they're deep and their roots go down far further than we want to admit. But if we will allow Jesus Christ to work in us and uproot those plans now, then we have an opportunity. There's actually a passage, I've I've used far too much time to actually turn to it, but it's in the book of Isaiah. And talking about the ashes, it's in Isaiah 61. Talking about the ashes... That mankind will have made of the world. God promises. But I'm coming to give you beauty for ashes. Brethren all of us have an opportunity. If we will examine ourselves. If we examine our foundations. And make sure we're building on the right one. To participate with God. And to give this world beauty. For the ashes that has been piling up for 6,000 years.